for nearly two decades. The award-winning Your Financial Editor program on 930 WFMD. News from the worlds of business and finance with your financial editor, Chris Murray. Welcome to another edition of the Your Financial Editor program right here on Free Talk Radio 930 WFMD at WFMD.com. And uh, also, you can download the WFMD app and have it on your smartphone and listen to the fine programming uh, that way as well. Uh, We have a good program for you today, Uh, some really interesting top stories, some earnings information, some economic data. And then joining me in just a little while, Professor Adam Elwanger. He is a professor at the University of Houston, and uh, he penned an open letter on campus culture uh, talking about the uh, threat of censorship at uh, today's colleges and universities. And um, it's, it's pretty impressive how many other professors have signed on to support this, saying that, you know, this is not something that we want to see. It's not healthy on co- college campuses or university campuses. And that the reason that we brought it in as a topic of discussion today was because the folks that are, you know, the young people that are at these uh, colleges and and universities are going to be the ones that lead our country forward, whether it's business or finance or history, whatever the case might be. So we want to get some insight as to what's really going on um, in higher education right now some of the dangers uh, that maybe are out there and what's being done about it, if anything. So, again, Professor Elwanger will be joining me in just a little bit uh, regarding that. Um, As far as the top stories of this week, obviously there was a lot going on with the, uh, the, the town hall debates and things of that nature. But on Thursday, something in particular kind of got my attention. Uh, President Trump was being interviewed And he came out and said that if Joe Biden wins the presidential election, China will own the United States. Obviously, that's a pretty bold statement. Uh, He was saying that just 10 years ago, everyone projected by 2019 that the economy of China was going to be bigger than the United States economy. And he said the reason that didn't happen was because he got elected and it turned out uh, to be fairly, you know, far from the truth. So in 2018, uh, President Trump enacted 25% tariffs on imported steel, 10% tariffs on imported aluminum. And by the way, none of that's new if you've been listening to the program here or if you listen when uh, I speak with Bob Miller on the Morning News Express. We're always trying to cover these types of things that uh, impact not just – business and commerce and finance here in the United States, but also abroad. So um, what I really liked, and this gets back to my conversation last week that I had with uh, David Ditch from the Heritage Foundation, saying that China has to accept responsibility for the virus and also accept responsibility for the financial damage uh, that has occurred. And just um, how they do that uh, remains to be seen. But President Trump said that his administration would make sure China funds a U.S. stimulus bill. So he said, we're going to take money from China. And, um, you know, China's the country that caused the uh, the virus and all the problems that came with it. And, um, and then, of course, they kind of covered it up and they weren't transparent and they just did a bunch of bad stuff like, I mean, it's just China. So um, I, I will really look forward to what Secretary of Commerce uh, Wilbur Ross has to say on this type of thing and how we can make uh, China either directly or indirectly pay for the damage that they've done to the United States of America. Now, I would imagine But I'm not sure that a lot of the European countries um, and other countries around the world would want to do the same thing. So I think that the, the bigger player, which, of course, is us, would have the best chance of some type of restitution based on um, all of the the financial damage. They can't do anything about all the lives lost. I mean, that's on them. 
all the sickness, that's on them. But when you talk about financially, people, the the carnage that was caused and all these byproducts of the virus, um, that's where you could actually get some traction and through creative ways make China pay for um, for what they've done, or at least for some of it. So we'll have to see how that all plays out. But I did think that was uh, pretty interesting to see. We also heard from uh, Treasury Secretary Mnuchin um, on Wednesday. He said that uh, he and Nancy Pelosi are far apart. That was his quote on some details of another uh, virus relief package and that an agreement would be hard to reach before the November 3rd election. Um, the two sides are divided over several priorities, um, and even Senate Republicans are resisting the $1.8 trillion offer that Mnuchin proposed last week and that President Trump said he was fine with. You've got a lot of fiscal conservative um, folks in the Senate on the Republican side that are saying, wait a minute, we have spent way too much money already. We don't need another $1.8 trillion going out the door unless um, we know exactly what it's targeted to and what it's, uh, you know, what problem is it actually going to fix? Not uh, pork money and, you know, favoritism, all that garbage. I mean, Pelosi said even that $1.8 trillion was insufficient and is calling for a $2.2 trillion package. And I don't know if anybody saw it this week, but um, she had a pretty big meltdown when uh, being pushed by a, um, a host on CNN, basically reminding her that there is need for more money because of uh, people still not back to work, not being able to feed their families, whatever the case might be. You know, I mean, on the business side, the airlines definitely, you know, need a little, uh, need some more money because you look at most of the things in the economy and you've seen pretty much a V-shaped recovery. Um, you're not seeing that in air travel. We saw a nice initial start to the recovery in that sector, but it, it didn't continue to go up. It started going sideways and uh, we're down quite a bit, uh, quite a bit as far as a TSA screenings for air flight and air travel. Uh, I think down 65% from where we were this time last year. I mean, that's just think if you lost 65% of your income, you know what that would, would do to you. I mean, it's serious. They're burning massive amounts of cash on a daily basis. It slowed their cash burn, but it's still, uh, sizable. So they they do need money. Um, these companies, these airliners are laying off people. They're furloughing folks. They're having, like we talked about last week, Southwest is saying, look, we've got to take some pay cuts here or um, we're not going to survive this. This is the worst. I think it was the CEO of United said this week, this is the worst financial crisis in aviation history. And they're down inside the Beltway playing politics and it is for bailing out states that and cities that are so poorly run and have been for decades so they can't use this excuse i mean money needs to go out in a very targeted way and the other thing we talked about over the last uh, months and weeks in particular is there's a lot of leftover money from the previous relief bill that wasn't claimed so all they need to do is uh, repurpose that money, basically, and say, okay, what we had it for originally, we didn't need it all. There's a lot left over. Let's use that money that's already been um, accounted for as far as relief money and do something targeted with that as opposed to coming up with a whole new program above and beyond that. So we'll see how it all plays out. But something needs to be done, but it needs to be targeted. It, it can't be uh, fluff because we've got way too much debt. Um, and like we were talking about the last couple of weeks, it's unsustainable. And here's a perfect example. We heard from um, the IMF this week. And basically, the managing director of the IMF said that climate change 
poses a threat to global growth, urging the world's top emitters to agree on a floor for carbon prices. We've been hearing that, and we know a lot of the countries like China and India and others, they're not going to play along. They're not going to – we're not going to be able to monitor how much emission – Um, So that gives them a competitive edge, a very, very unfair edge. But here's the thing. Like I said, we've been hearing that for years. Here's the thing that the managing director said. She was telling finance ministers around the world on climate change that countries should also ensure their stimulus funding, their relief funding, should be – that's actually aimed at halting – the the coronavirus should target green investments. What do green investments have to do with the coronavirus? How stupid was that statement? And that was her statement. So um, just it's it's unbelievable how these people want to hijack large, large amounts of money and tell countries what to do. And I don't know, I guess if um, if all of you listening go out and buy a solar panel, maybe the coronavirus will go away. I mean, I doubt that's going to happen, but it, the, the logic here just makes no sense. They live in their own bubble for sure. Um, now, something that was really positive to hear this week, and I don't know that I really ever thought I'd be talking about this, was... What happened in Israel? So the ship-to-shore crane paused above this massive cargo ship that had just arrived from Dubai. So they picked up a sea container, and then they paused in Hafi, Israel, in the port there, and then they put the load down on the pier in Israel. So one after another, containers filled with electronics, cleaning supplies, firefighting equipment, all of that, all of that was unloaded um, off the MSS Paris, one of the first cargo ships to make the voyage between the United Arab Emirates and Israel. So remember the peace deal that was being talked about that a lot of people didn't pay any attention to or think that, oh, oh, it's a photo op. Or, oh, it's just, you know, give somebody an award to put on their on their shelf. Or, oh, it's just for political gain. You've actually got trade between United Arab Emirates and Israel. Just a few months ago, just a few months ago, no one would have imagined the journey from Dubai's port to the port in northern Israel, that city of Haifa. Nobody would have, including me. I mean, I I am so shocked and yet so encouraged by this. Um, And I just thought it was great. You know, these countries announced some type of normalization back in August. That laid the groundwork for potentially a profitable new trade route. And we saw that actually this week start to take place. So I just I thought that was great. And um, I you know give credit to everybody that was involved in making that happen. Um, I pray that radical people don't disrupt that and um, that it it flourishes and not just with the United Arab Emirates, but with the other Gulf Coast nations. Uh, once they see what can be done, um, I think it can be very positive. So good for Israel. I were a rich man. All day long If I were a wealthy man I wouldn't have to work hard If I were a rich Idle-diddle-diddle man I'd build a big tall house where the rooms by the dozen right in the middle born in 1936 and still young a local legend 930 wfmd from now on 
reluctantly crouched at the starting line. Engines pumping and thumping in time. The green light flashes, the flags go up. Churning and burning, they yearn for the cup. They deftly maneuver and muscle for rank. Fuel burning fast on an empty tank. Reckless and wild, they pour through the turns. Their prowess is potent and secretly stern. As they speed through the finish, the flags go down. The fans get up and they get out of town. The arena is empty, except for one man still driving and striving as fast as he can. The sun has gone down and the moon has come up. And long ago, somebody left with the cup. He's driving and striving and hugging the turns and thinking of someone for whom he still burns. He's going the distance. He's going Welcome back. This is Chris Murray, your financial editor on Free Talk Radio 930 WFMD at WFMD.com. And don't forget, you can get the uh, program as a podcast off of iTunes. Just go to iTunes and uh, search your financial editor and you'll have your uh, podcast there. So, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, you know, quite a busy week, as I mentioned at the top of the program. One reason was because of the earnings. So we really kicked into uh, all brand new earnings season for the third quarter, got rolling in particular with the banks this week uh, to get things going. So uh, J.P. Morgan, uh, it looks like their executives are optimistic that uh, the rev- uh, virus will not send the economy Um, back into a tailspin. Um, Their comments came on Tuesday after J.P. Morgan reported much stronger than expected results for the third quarter, beating profit estimates. And, you know, the other thing, they didn't set outside a whole lot of money for loan losses. Um, And that was encouraging, I thought. So, you know, they're optimistic. Now, what politicians do as far as – these draconian uh, shutdowns and mandatory shelter in place and stay at home and no, you're not essential, which is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. You know, anybody that wants to get up and or needs to get up in the morning and go out and work and support their family, they're essential. And I, I just hope everybody realizes that whether you have that ridiculous tag or not, um, you know, with our firm, yeah, we were essential the whole time they told us. Well, guess what? I, everybody's essential. You know, I don't need somebody telling me that we're essential. We know we have an important job to do and uh, important services to provide. But um, so does everybody else, like I said, that actually wants to earn an honest living. So they're all essential. Um, so we'll have to wait and see. But I think that's what those comments are kind of tempered on is how much uh, overreach from the government are you going to see? Citigroup, same story there. They beat analyst estimates for third quarter profit. Uh, Real nice numbers in their trading department. And don't forget, I guess it's going to be early in 2021, Jane Frazier. uh, I talked about this a couple weeks ago on the program, is going to become the first uh, female of a major bank on Wall Street. So and she earned it. I mean, very successful lady. They're not doing it just because she's a lady. Um, They're doing it for for the right reasons. Um, So looking forward to seeing what she can do there. Uh, Bank of America, uh, their executives kind of join the course, if you will, of other bank officials saying that the economy is going to improve. Um, The jury's still out on how much the government intervenes. So and they also, by the way, set aside less money for potential loan losses. Uh, You know, they they set aside one point four billion, if I remember right. And in the second quarter, they had set aside over five billion dollars. So the recovery, you you know, when people say, oh, we're really not recovering and they try to uh, talk down the economy and talk down whatever they can because of political uh, motivations, um, you're looking at a bank that's saying, oh, yeah, we're going from setting aside $5 billion because of loan losses to, no, nah, we're just setting aside $1.4 billion. I mean, obviously, unfortunately, tons of companies are going out of business because they can't function like they need to. Um, and it's not their fault. But if it was as dire as what a lot of people are saying, I would anticipate that J.P. Morgan and, and the others would be saying, yeah, we got to set – uh, as much or even more aside than we did the last quarter because things are going to uh, worsen. 
Goldman Sachs, they posted their best uh, quarterly profit performance in a decade. So you'd have to go back to 2010 to see uh, what they got done. It was just unbelievable. They blew away what analysts were looking for. Uh, Unfortunately, not the case for Wells Fargo. Wells Fargo continues to be uh, the punching bag. So they fell short of Wall Street estimates for the third quarter when it came to profit. They had about $1 billion in expenses tied to the years-long sales scandal that we've talked about. So, um, And it wasn't too long ago their CEO got in some hot water with a comment he made. So they just continue to have a real, real hard time. And I mentioned uh, a little while ago um, about the airlines and how they do need uh, economic relief. Uh, that's, you know, that's a legitimate ask, if you will. It's not a unnecessary bailout. Um, you know, it's, it's needed. So um, Delta came out with earnings. Uh, they've been focused on cutting costs. They're trying to boost their liquidity. They're obviously wanting uh, customers to feel confident, to feel safe as far as flying goes. But they're um, – Revenues are down 76% or were down 76% in the third quarter from a year ago. I mean, just a huge amount. United Airlines, I touched on that with the the CEO talking about, you know, this being the worst financial crisis in aviation history. Uh, They cut their operating costs by 59% in the third quarter. They've got about $20 billion of liquidity to position them for – the recovery, but you have to wonder how much of that they're going to burn through until um, the end of the year also. So really hard for the airlines out there. Uh, they run on, you know, some thin margins often anyway. So we'll see how uh, they survive this and maybe there'll be consolidation. Maybe some will just go away. Maybe they'll all, you know, hang on and, and get through this. Time will tell for sure. When we look at the economic data this week, um, consumer prices, the CPI, increased for the fourth straight month in September. Uh, you know what? A lot of that, though, was the cost of cars and trucks rising by the most since 1969. So that report came from the Labor Department. Um, and again, you've got uh, these um, these vehicles out there that were up the 6.7% jump in the prices of used cars and trucks. And that accounted for most of the increase in the CPI, which was up two tenths of 1%. So, um, and that was after prior months, you know, really showing, showing some inflation, some activity, but you know, people were saying, Hey, I'm not going to ride the bus anymore. I'm not going to ride the train or I'm not going to take a taxi. I'm going to get my own uh, source of, of travel here, transportation, and they're in, in particular they're buying used uh, cars and trucks. I mean the new cars and trucks uh, business is good, but the used is also extremely good. And the producer price index, which is the inflation gauge between businesses, you know wholesalers, actually jumped more than what was anticipated. That was up four tenths of one percent. Um, the question there always is. What's the business going to do with that increase in their costs? Because their costs have become inflated. Do they eat that or do they pass that along to the consumer? So only time will tell there. Bottom line when it comes to the CPI and the PPI is that um, it, um, it, it's well in check. And we don't have to worry about any serious inflation pressure yet. And that's because... We haven't had this huge influx of money from both the government and the Federal Reserve for too terribly long so far. So we'll have to see long term in particular what happens um, as far as inflation goes. Really glad to see that the NFIB, the National Federation of Independent Business, their optimism index was up 3.8 points last month to a reading of 104 That's a historically high reading. I want to let you know our latest complimentary download, Are You Paying Too Much in Taxes in Retirement? 
Go to murrayfinancialgroup.com. It's on the homepage. Tap the button. It's an instant download for you. You can uh, view it online or you can print it off, of course, and um, make notes. And um, I hope you find it helpful for your particular situation. Uh, But again, the complimentary piece is titled, Are You Paying Too Much in Taxes in Retirement? And um, when we come back, uh, we'll be talking with Professor Elwinger, and um, he's a professor at the um, University of Houston. He's penned an open letter on campus culture. We're going to talk about what's in the letter, why he did it, what other um, faculty has signed on, and the importance, as far as this program goes, is when folks come out, these young folks come out of college or university, how are they going to carry the United States of America forward with business and finance and history and science? Your financial editor with Chris Murray on 930 WFMD. back. This is Chris Murray, your financial editor on Free Talk Radio 930 WFMD at WFMD.com and available on iTunes as a podcast. Uh, If you're just joining us for the first time this morning, welcome. Uh, Really appreciate it. Um, And if you've uh, been a listener for a little while and and are enjoying it, thanks so much. And and, and I'm I'm hopeful that that's the the case. And maybe you've been with us for the whole almost 23 years now. And really a big shout out to all you uh, who have been so loyal and supportive and and the feedback as far as enjoying the program. So uh, good program uh, as far as the second half for you uh, today, where we'll be speaking with my guest who's joining me, uh, Mr. Adam Elwanger. He is a uh, tenured professor in English uh, or in the English department uh, at the University of Houston downtown. He received his Ph.D. in English in 2009 from the University of South Carolina Uh, where he specialized in rhetoric, composition, and critical theory, and now uh, serves as a graduate director of that program and teaches some of the foundational courses at the University of Houston's, uh, as far as their master program. Good morning, Adam. How are you? Good morning. Thanks for having me, Chris. Sure. Glad to have you. So, you know, um, I am always like searching around and looking for different things and wondering how those things might impact um, our our country. And um, one of the things I, I saw uh, this past week was something that you were involved in, uh, a letter that you have written. And um, it was uh, on the Claremont, Claremont Institute website. And it really caught my attention. This is something we've talked a little bit about before here on the program. But the concern in higher education right now and some of the things that we're hearing, some of the things that we're seeing, and the the way I connected to um, the economy, both domestically and globally, to the financial markets, both domestically and globally, et cetera, 
is that these are the young folks that are going to lead the United States of America forward. And um, some of the things we hear and see, it's a little disheartening. And then when I saw your letter, um, an open letter on campus culture, it really seemed to hit the bullseye. So that's why um, I invited you on, and, and I'm looking forward to speaking with you this morning about that. And I guess we'll just start with what was the uh, catalyst for you to uh, to write this letter? Well, it's the letter's kind of been a long time coming. Um, I've been, uh, since I turned 18 years old in 1996, I've either lived or worked on a college campus. Um, and I haven't been a political conservative for all of that time, but um, I've always noticed um, that, that higher ed is trending in, a, in the direction of a particular ideology. Um, I guess I became more aware of the severity of the problem um, shortly after the Obama administration uh, offered a Dear Colleague letter that expanded uh, the, the coverage of Title IX. Um, and in 2015, I was the subject of a Title IX complaint uh, where I got in trouble for about nine months because in class I said that uh, members of the LGBT community do not face discrimination in every area of the work world. Um, and that triggered a, a giant investigation, and, um, you know, you could read about that at the James G. Martin Center. But uh, that was a, uh, an important moment. I guess when the letter itself began was this summer, uh, after watching some of the rioting and the responses of my university and other universities to this moment that we found ourselves in this summer. And it became very clear to me that um, uh, intellectuals and, and people in higher education who are out of step with um, left ideology are going to have to state up front what they are not willing to do as the university becomes uh, more aggressive in its indoctrination. Um, and initially, I wrote the letter uh, to myself. I initially wrote it um, as an attempt to justify to myself how I was going to resist uh, some of the policy measures that the universities were implementing. Um, and through the drafts, it, I started circulating it among some friends, and uh, they said, hey, you should, you, know, you should send this out widely, get some signatures. And so that's what we did, and now we're up to, I think, about 170 signatures from people in higher ed who have committed to forms of noncompliance with um, some of the measures that are being implemented to advance a left political agenda in higher ed. Yeah, and I mean, when we're talking about um, the educators uh, that you're referring to, it's large and small universities and colleges. I mean, I saw Duke, um, I saw Auburn, I saw the University of Cambridge, the University of Buckingham, uh, Northwestern. Um, I mean, it's it's kind of across the board as far as the support and in, in all different uh, categories, it seems like the um, the professor of oncology at MD Anderson Cancer Center. I mean, it, <laughs> you know, so I mean, it, I, I don't understand, I guess, why more um, folks don't really pay attention to this. Not I mean. It's really, really important if you have children in uh, college or at university or if your grandchildren, too, are um, going to be exposed. You know, so often those that are fortunate enough have grandparents that might help with uh, tuition or books or, um, you know, help their grandchildren any way they can if it's financially uh, viable. But I think they really need to understand what they're being exposed to now. And you use the word indoctrination, which I, I think that's the perfect wor uh, word, um, you know, what they're being exposed to. And it really warrants to have some conversations. Um, are, are you seeing that, that, you know, this is becoming more of a, a talking point when people are being rational and saying, hey, this seems a little far reaching? Um. Well, I definitely think that there are more people in academia 
who are uh, willing to say something, but only because the the grasp of the um, of the ideology has tightened. I think I think it's it's demanding more of us than it used to. Um, and and frankly, I I think that you know the the number of people who support the ideas in the letter are probably far more than who actually signed it because there really are very great professional risks involved in putting your name to such a letter. Um, so if I, you know, a lot of my conservative friends, and, and I'm a conservative, think that the way to solve some of the problems in higher ed is to do away with tenure. Um, but I'll tell you this, if I was an untenured professor, I never would have written this letter, you know, and I, I certainly wouldn't have signed it. Um, and I think that you'll note that the vast majority of signers are people who have tenure protections. Um, and, and the people who don't have that, uh, you know, um, they, they've, they've, they've got some, some real courage. There's a few signers who are graduate students and people who do not have tenure. And for them to put their name to something like this is, is a, I think, a real act of courage. Um, but that's what it's going to take, I think, to take it back. Um, we, can't, we can't continue to just sort of implore our colleagues to see the value of uh, intellectual diversity and diversity of thought because, because they're not listening, frankly. Well, it's such a twisted word, the whole diversity thing now, you know, of what it used to be. Now it's, uh, it's so convoluted that I think people, they just don't even know what that, what that means anymore. Um, it's, it's open-ended, and you've got diversity training and diversity courses, and, um, you know, you have to have a, diver, a diverse work for. I mean, it just people are trying to figure out what exactly, you know, where are we? This is, this is never-ending. And um, so I, I, let's go back. So you said you were 18 in 1996? Yeah. Okay. So you're starting your, you know, your, uh, your college at 18 or 19 as a freshman. Take us from what school was like for you then through your progression of getting, you know, your, uh, your bachelor's and then your master's eventually in English. Um, well, I, I guess, uh, at the beginning, uh, my parents were, were fairly, political people. We would talk about political issues a lot at the dinner table. And so I guess I've always been a person who's interested in politics. But when I arrived on campus, I would say that my views weren't fully formed. And probably if you would have talked to me at 20 years old, I would have said I was a Marxist, um, you know, and, and uh, you know, the, be, partly because that's those are the ideas I was encountering on campus. Um, but at that time, as a student, uh, the the only real uh, uh, ideological dimension of education seemed to be the fact that professors sort of reserved a certain disdain for conservative ideas that they'd mock some of them, whatever. That's not a big deal, and I think that that conservative students, if they're listening, need to learn to to deal with that, right? Because you know. Um, Everything is is valid uh, for critique. Nothing is cordoned off. Um, but as I moved into graduate school, uh, it became clear, and that was I think I started grad school just as the Iraq War was was starting, um, and uh, that is when I started to see a turn um, where uh, there were maybe more consequences um, in terms of your grades and your prospects if you openly advocated um, for conservative positions. Um, and then, you know, uh, um, obviously getting getting a tenure track job and, and these things, um, you all that requires that you toe the ideological line, um, especially in disciplines that are in the humanities like English and philosophy and, and history. Um, so I was able to do that successfully, but you kind of have to keep your your head low um, in in the interim, right? Because um, now there's even more gatekeeping that goes on in higher ed. For example, you might be aware of diversity statements that now, if you're applying for a professorship, many schools will will require you to write a statement that professes your devotion to diversity. And and like you said. Diversity can mean a lot of different things, but 
you know, the, the clear implication is it's a, a very left-oriented notion of diversity and multiculturalism. And if you don't, aren't willing to say those things in writing, um, then, you know, you simply won't be hired. Um, that's where we are. And that's only one example of the, the many ways that, um, that policy has become infected um, by ideological motives. And I think it's, it's that thing that troubles me the most, that the, the policies and at the procedural level of the function of the university as an institution, um, it is becoming infected with uh, political motives. And I think that's counter to the project of, of liberal education at large, um, which shouldn't seek uh, uh, political ends, but should rather seek truth. And that's a very old-fashioned idea now, but I'm still very committed to it. Yeah, no, no. Well put. Uh, We're going to take a a quick break. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with my guest this morning, Dr. L. Wenger. Uh, He is a tenured associate professor in the English department at the University of Houston downtown, received his Ph.D. in English in 2009 from the University of South Carolina. All you USC folks out there. And um, we'll uh, we'll pick this back up in just a minute. So uh, stay tuned. We'll be back in a second. The biggest names in talk radio are available locally on the 930 WFMV app. A service of Dave's Cooling and Heating. Download it at WFMV.com. Welcome back. This is Chris Murray, your financial editor on Free Talk Radio 930 WFMD at uh, 930 dot, or WFMD.com, excuse me. And also you can get the program as a podcast uh, on iTunes, so help yourself uh, with that. And we're uh, wrapping up our, our discussion with my guest this morning, uh, Dr. Adam Elwanger. He's a tenured uh, professor in the English Department, University of Houston downtown. Got his Ph.D. in 09 from the University of South Carolina, where he specialized in rhetoric, composition, and critical theory. And uh, penned uh, a, a letter titled An Open Letter on Campus Culture, um, Academics Speak Out Against the Threat of Censorship. So, you know, Adam, like you said, if you're not tenured, you know, this is so sad to say. You have to keep your head down. Um, and unfortunately... If you're a student, you have to do the same thing, it seems like. Otherwise, you'll be called a racist or a bigot or a Nazi or whatever buzzword that, you know, or talking point that people can come up with. And I know this firsthand because our oldest um, went to James Madison University and would tell me, like, he was in a class and the, you know, the instructor would say something that was somewhat asinine and he just would like kind of sink down in his chair. He didn't want to make eye contact. He didn't want to be called on about that. Um, he just wanted to keep, he had a good grade point average and he, that's all he was, that's all he worried about, which good for him. <laughs> but it's funny. He said there was this young man sat in the front row every day of class that he was there. And when the professor was incorrect historically he would raise his hand and challenge him and most of the time win the day win the the argument and i just thought that was so inspiring to hear that you know even though it's extremely hard to do you still have uh young men and women that will step out on that plank yeah uh i think that you know that's to me as a professor, that's what I want from my students. What I want from my students is some pushback because it's in the the conversation 
that we both come to a greater understanding of of what the topic under discussion is. Um, unfortunately, I think that uh, your oldest is probably right um, in in the the sense that what the teachers really want, many of them now, is to silence that kind of discussion. And the reason that they want to do it is because, again, they're they're engaged in a process of indoctrination, right? And so many of the people who are trying to fight these trends talk about viewpoint diversity, and they say, look, a diversity of views is valuable in itself. And they spend time trying to convince people in higher ed, hey, don't shut down people who disagree with you. A viewpoint diversity is important, right? But viewpoint diversity is only important when we're searching for truth. That's what makes it important is because we can test each other's views. The error that these people make who are trying to preach viewpoint diversity is that the project of higher ed right now is not the pursuit of truth. The project of higher ed is to teach a certain ideological view of the world. And once that is the central project of the educational enterprise, then viewpoint diversity is no longer valuable. Right? Viewpoint diversity is not valuable if we're engaged in a process of indoctrination. And that's where we are. Um, and that's why simply telling our colleagues who disagree with us or your professors, if you're a student who disagree with you, hey, different viewpoints are valuable, they already understand that, right? But they don't want that value because they're not in the pursuit of truth. And so the important thing is not to be silenced, right, to speak up when you think you're right, right? That's part of what, uh, what an educational or intellectual dialogue is about. And when people won't listen, being willing to tell yourself what you are and are not willing to do when it comes to the expectations that institutions and other people impose on you. And that's really what the letter was about. Yeah, and I just want to let everybody know, uh, I should have done this earlier, but AmericanMind.org is where you can find your free copy of an open letter on campus culture, AmericanMind.org. Um, and uh, like I said, you can, it, this is really interesting, like when I've been reading it and highlighting uh, the last couple of days. So, so before we run out of time, uh, some of the positions that you have, uh, safe spaces, tell us quickly about that, an overview. Uh, well, there's there's an assumption now by many authorities and professors and even students in higher education that uh, speech can be a form of violence, that merely speaking ideas can be a form of violence that marginalizes people or hurts others. Uh, and so the, the idea that's grown out of that belief is that campus needs to have spaces set aside for free speech so that people who don't want to encounter the violence of speech could stay away from it and not have to encounter these ideas that apparently are so offensive. Um, the, some campuses have actually implemented this idea, and uh, there are safe spaces on campus or, or free speech spaces that are reserved for speaking um, heretical uh, uh, things. Um, and, of course, like, you know, if, if the institution of the university is aimed at understanding truth, we'll need to have an open dialogue, and that dialogue can't be uh, shuffled off over to a corner in the cafeteria. The entire campus needs to be a safe space for free speech, and the signers of the letter are uh, committed to um, uh, inhabiting the space of the university in that way, as if there are no restrictions on speech. Yeah, absolutely. And folks, uh, you can see the positions in this letter, and you can also see uh, what some of the resolutions are that are being proposed. It's a fairly short read. I, I think you would benefit from it, especially, again, if you're a parent or a grandparent or even if you're a student and you want to make sure that you go in uh, empowered and make sure that you know what's fair, what's not fair. Um, and, and I think it'll make you stronger because at the end of the day, do you want somebody coming out running a business or – involved in government that needs safe space, that doesn't know how to truly interact unless it's with a text or freaking out and, you know, in uh, 
in person or on social media, that's not good for the country, not financially, economically, when it comes to our history. Um, so this is if you go to AmericanMind.org, you can uh, download, uh, pull this up and, and print it off the letter that my guest this morning, Dr. Adam um, Elwanger, has penned. And you'll see all these uh, professors that have signed it. And that's really encouraging, and I hope that it really uh, gains steam for sure. Uh, Adam, thanks so much for taking time to join us and kind of give us that insight and uh, making the letter available, which I know a lot of people will take advantage of. And um, we'll catch up with you down the road and see if things have improved. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for having me, Chris. You're welcome, Adam. Enjoy the rest of the weekend. Uh, Really found the conversation, and I'm sure you folks did too. Uh, Very interesting, educational. That's what we want. We don't want to beat around the bush or, you know, act like something's not going on when it is. It's like earlier when I went on my tirade about science, 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 science. We're following the science. You know what? Until you can put the word exact in front of that, I don't want to hear it. Because there's just as many people that are following a different science and they're not shutting down and they're not causing mental illness problems and all the other stuff that goes along with it. So until you can do that, um, keep it, you know, to yourself or I mean, you can spew it. But and unfortunately, there's people out there that will believe you. Um, But I really this is really a good read. It's interesting to see what's going on and hear what's going on at university. Um, go to AmericanMind.org. Actually, their homepage, I just pulled it up. Um, they have um, uh, Justice, uh, soon to be, I hope, Justice Barrett um, on there with her family. So you can check that out, too, while you're there. Um, so I'll talk to you on the Morning News Express with Bob Miller, 556 5750. Uh, live updates every weekday morning when Bob and I, Bob and I uh, speak. And then we'll uh, see you here next Saturday uh, for another edition of the Your Financial Editor program. And your free download at murrayfinancialgroup.com. Are you paying too much in taxes in retirement? That's a complimentary download for you. And you can print it off if you'd like and mark it up. And um, I hope it's helpful. That's why we do that. This is Chris Murray wishing you and your family financial success. editions of this program are available in the audio vault at wfmd.com news radio 930 wfmd frederick a connoisseur media radio station seven o'clock